Father God, thank you. Thank you for an opportunity to come together to study your word, to dig in, um, and to get a glimpse of your plan and understand just better your word. Help it bring us closer to you. Uh, God, I pray that your spirit would be here, would be in us, would be opening our ears and our hearts, would be guiding us through this study. Um, God, please guide me. Uh, please make it your words, not mine. Let you be the spotlight. God, we love you, and we pray that through this, we love you and know you more. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are still working through our over, overview. Uh, we're kind of doing an Old Testament survey of the... Um, Actually, we're doing a whole Bible survey. We're in the Old Testament right now. We've worked our way from Genesis up to the second half of Joshua, which is where we are tonight. Last week, we did the first half of Joshua, which covered the first two sections. We broke Joshua up into three sections. The first five chapters are their preparation for entering the promised land. Lots of things happened as they prepare to enter the promised land. First, their faith was tested. They had to step into the water of the Jordan River before the water would stop. The priests carried the ark into the Jordan River, and the water didn't stop flowing until their feet were in the water. So we know that their faith was tested. Once they got to the other side of the river, as they looked at Jericho, the city, the first city they were going to take, um, they were still ill-prepared to conquer the city because there was still something that needed to be done. In the desert the people had forgotten to circumcise their children. So the first generation that was circumcised failed to enter the promised land. The next generation that had been born in the wilderness and running through the wilderness failed to circumcise themselves and their children. So they weren't outwardly, they didn't have the physical sign of the covenant that God had with them. So they had to prepare themselves to enter the land. And what is a circumcision without the gory details, it's, it's cutting away of the flesh. So it's getting your heart right. It's cutting away the flesh and recognizing the purity of the covenant with God and getting your hearts prepared. And they also, after they were circumcised and they cut away the flesh, they practiced the Passover, which the Passover, uh, as we pointed out in our study in Exodus, is really a picture of Christ. And so that was preparing for the land. Then they went and conquered. As they, after they conquered Jericho, they decided to conquer Ai, the city of Ai next. So they basically split the country in half, the promised land in half at that point with the first two cities they conquered. So they divide and conquer. They cut the promised land in half. Then they go south, conquer the south, and then went up north to conquer the north. And at this point, the land, as much as Joshua is going to be able to lead, has been conquered. And so now it's time to settle the land, to divide and settle. And so through the next bunch of chapters, what happens is the land is divided by tribe. Joshua casts lots and divides the lands by tribe. Now, uh, we're not going to go into every detail of these 12 chapters because it's just a lot of information and borders, and it's almost like reading a real estate contract, which is not the goal of this particular study, it would be fun to do sometime, but this particular study is to get more of an overview of the idea and the major themes behind this section. So let's kind of gloss over the big dividing of the land. So the 12 tribes each get their land. Judah 
takes the majority of the southern part of Israel, um, along with smaller portions that go to Benjamin and Simeon. When Judah conquers their portion and settles their portion, they fail to drive out the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So they get all of their land and all of their cities except Jerusalem. So that'll be dealt with when King David takes over. Um, in the northern part, you have, well, at first, east of the Jordan River, you have Reuben and Gad settle east of the Jordan River, Jordan River, and half of the tribe of Manasseh also settles east of the Jordan River from where they crossed. The other half of Manasseh, along with the rest of the tribes, take the north. So the tribe of Dan, Ephraim, Issachar, Zebulun, Asher, and Naphtali, as well as half of Manasseh, take the northern part of Israel. This is important to note because when Israel goes through the Civil War, when we get to the Book of Kings and they split up and are taken over, they split into north and south, into the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, Judah being the south, Israel being the north. And 10 tribes end up settling in the north, ultimately. And then down south, it becomes Benjamin and Judah's territory. And then there's also the tribe of Levi. Levi, what do they get? Well, we're told that they don't get any of the land. That's their inheritance is God. They get to be the priesthood. They get donations and to eat some of the sacrifices. So they get some of the fat of the animals and, and the meat. <clears throat> and they also get 48, 48 cities, but they're not in one specific area. They're scattered throughout Israel. So the Levites are scattered, scattered throughout Israel among all the tribes. <clears throat> this is so that the ones who, are, who inherited God and his law and inherited the priesthood are now available to all of Israel. God makes sure that no tribe is without being near the priests because God's word is meant to be taught and to have answers um, given to it. So the, the, the Levites are spread out so that no one is without being near the keepers of the word of God. So that's sort of where things are and how the land gets divided. So we'll, now we'll dig into just a few pieces of this section so that we can close up the book of Joshua. So starting in, in chapter 13, it starts out like this. So this is after the conquest, before Joshua is getting ready to divide the land. And God is talking to Joshua. He says, now Joshua was old and advanced in years. And the Lord said to him, you are old, advanced in years, and, which is hilarious. And there remains very much land yet to be possessed. This is the land that yet remains, all the territory of the Philistines and all that of the Geshurites from Sihon, which is east of Egypt, as far as the border of Ekron, northward, which is counted as Canaanite, the five lords of the Philistines, the Gazites, the Ashdodites, the Ashkelonites, the Gittites, and the Ekronites, and all the ites. So Joshua, he's somewhere between 80 and over 100 years old at this point. We don't really know for sure. But God is speaking to Joshua, and he says, you're old, which is always nice to hear. Um, and he says, but there's still a lot of work to do, but it's, it's not really your work that's going to be done. So he, he divides the land, and he gives instruction for the rest of the people to conquer what's left over. I think this is interesting because, I mean, Joshua spent so much time being 
prepared to be a man of war. I mean, he was a man of war back in Exodus um, as Moses' right-hand man. He led the battle against the Amalekites in Exodus when they were fleeing after they had fled from the Egyptians. Um, and when he took over for Moses, he was, you know, middle-aged. And by this point in time, you know, he's an, he's an old man. And uh, I always find it interesting that in our culture, we prepare to stop working. But as we look at these old biblical characters, they did most of their work. Like Moses didn't do anything for 80 years. And then he finally got to work for the last 40 years of his life, working for God. Um, Joshua, while he was Moses' right-hand man, he was the leader and he did a lot of stuff in his old age. And so as long as you have a breath in your lungs, you're not done. God's still got stuff for you to do. And Joshua, at this point, he's done what God has asked him to do. He's a victor. And even though God says to him, you're old, there's still much to do, meaning God will still get his work done with or without Joshua. The work moves on. And that's for us, maybe a little bit depressing, but also really encouraging because it's not all on our shoulders. We get to participate in an eternal story that lasts and matters. Or we can choose to be king of our own story, and when we die, the story dies with us. Or we can be a part of something eternal. When we're done, our name might be in the book of life, but the story continues, and God's work continues on. And we get to be part of an eternal legacy. And that's what Joshua did. And so Joshua gives instructions to the tribes and tells them what to do. And then we come across a really interesting guy, um, Joshua's partner. Now, when Joshua was kind of Moses' right-hand man, he went in and spied out the promised land when Moses was going to lead the people in. And there were 12 spies. Ten of them were terrible. But two of them came back with Good, with a good report and said, we should take the land. And that was Caleb and Joshua. But because only two out, of ten, two out of 12 decided they wanted to go into the promised land, the rest of the Israelites decided they didn't want to do it. But that generation died away and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until God would allow the next generation to take the promised land, except for two guys, Caleb and Joshua. And Caleb is still playing a role in this story. And so in chapter 14, we pick up Caleb's story in verse six. Now, Caleb is part of the tribe of Judah, but he gets something special set aside for just Caleb because of his service to God. So let's look at that. Then, this is verse six, then the children of Judah came to Joshua in Gilgal, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know, the word which the Lord said to Moses, the man of God concerning you and me in Kadesh Barnea. So, He's pointing to that time when they were about to investigate the promised land for Moses. He goes, remember that, Joshua? I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to spy out the land. And I brought back word to him as it was in my heart. And he's saying, remember when we went out to spy the land? You and I did that together. And I told Moses what was on my heart. I was honest. It says, nevertheless, my brothers who went up with me the heart, uh, made the, par the heart of the people melt. But I wholly followed the Lord my God. So the people who went with him 
They were scared about conquering the land, but Caleb wasn't. So Moses swore on that day, saying, Surely the land where your foot has trodden shall be your inheritance and your children's forever, because you have wholly followed the Lord my God. And now, behold, the Lord has kept me alive. And he said, These 45 years, ever since the Lord spoke this word to Moses, while Israel wandered in the wilderness, and now here I am this day, 85 years old. So Caleb's been holding on to this promise for 45 years, knowing that God was going to give him some land when they finally inherited the promised land. That's a man who cares. That's a man who believes God promises no matter how long it takes for them to fulfill. Um, I think that's something we can all learn from in the culture of instant gratification. Sometimes we're not patient enough to wait on God to fulfill his promises and we assume he's not listening because it takes him more than a day to answer our prayer. But Caleb's been waiting for 45 years. He's 85 years old. And this is what he says as an 85-year-old man. As yet I am, I am as strong this day as on the day that Moses sent me. Just as my strength was then, so now is my strength for war, both for going out and coming in. Now, therefore, give me this mountain of which the Lord spoke in that day. And you heard in that day how the Anakim were filled, or were there, and that the cities were great and fortified. It may be that the Lord will be with me, and I shall be to drive them out as the Lord said. And Joshua blessed him and gave Hebron to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, an inheritance. Hebron, therefore, became the inheritance of Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, to this day, because he wholly followed the Lord God of Israel. And the name of Hebron formerly was Kirjath Arba. Arba was the greatest man among the Anakim. Then the land had rest from war. So Caleb, 85-year-old man, waiting on a promise for 45 years, his words are, I'm as strong now as I was when I got that promise. How is that possible? He's an 85-year-old man. It's, he's as strong because he's as strong in God's promises. He understands that God will fulfill his victory. This is the thing about Caleb and something that I need to work on. Caleb worships God from a place of victory. Quite frankly, I am tired from worshiping of a place from defeat. It's easy to feel defeated in this world. It's easy to feel like the culture is winning. It's easy to feel like the church is dying. But the truth is, we are heading into the season. Easter is almost here. We have victory over the strongest thing that this world has to offer, death. We beat it because of Jesus beating it. Caleb trusts in God's promise and he worships from a place of confidence and victory. And he has no doubt. And he's so confident, he says to the leader of the Israelites, give me this mountain that God promised me and I'm gonna go conquer it. An 85-year-old guy. Man, I wish I was like that. I think it's time to worship from a place of victory. Now, just before chapter 16, you do see something interesting as the, the land is still being divided. Verse 63 says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive them out. But the Jebusites dwell with the children of Judah, 
at Jerusalem to this day. So Judah fulfills all of their endeavors and conquers the majority of the, south, the southern portion of Israel, but they fail to conquer Jerusalem. I just find that really interesting just from the parallels of history. The is, Israel has always had trouble, like Jerusalem's their capital, you know, but even when they received the promised land from God, they had trouble receiving Jerusalem. They had trouble getting Jerusalem. And I just find it very interesting that when Israel was reborn in 1948, that they didn't have Jerusalem with them and they didn't receive Jerusalem for a decade or two until they, they won a war and reclaimed Jerusalem as their city. And even now, where Jerusalem has been globally understood to be the capital of Israel, they still don't have control of the Temple Mount. And so I just, I just find it interesting. It's just sort of an interesting parallel I wanted to touch on. But let's move forward to, uh, to chapter 18, because there's something interesting. Because Jerusalem is not conquered, the, their capital, their, their holy city, the first verse in chapter 18 gives us some inclination of how they're going to worship. It says, now the whole congregation of the children of Israel assembled together at Shiloh and set up the tabernacle of meeting of meeting there, and the land was subdued before them. So Shiloh is sort of in the middle of Israel, and they set up the tabernacle there. The tabernacle stays there in one place at Shiloh for 369 years until it's moved to Jerusalem, until they have Jerusalem. Now, that's important because Shiloh ends up being the place, the center of their worship, right in the center of Israel. 369 years, the tabernacle was set up there, and that's where all of the sacrifices and the worship was done. This means, this, was, this is the fulfillment of what this book is about. The book of Joshua is the Israelites no longer being a nomadic, wandering tribe, and they are fulfilling God's promise to be a nation with their own place. The tabernacle is no longer on the move. The tabernacle has found a home. God has found a place in the center of Israel to be worshipped, and it doesn't have to move anymore until it moves to Jerusalem and finds its, its permanent home forever. But the, they are now fulfilling the promise. They are a stationary nation of God, no longer a nomadic tribe. And so we get past all of the the dividing of the land, Joshua gets his own peace as well. And we come to chapter 20. Now, I've been waiting to do this for a long time because we've mentioned the cities of refuge in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, and now we're finally here. The cities of refuge. I pointed out that the cities of refuge are a picture of Christ. And so chapter 20, let's dig in. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, which is in the book of Numbers and Deuteronomy, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. So what is this? What's happening? God had told Moses to set up cities of refuge. Now Joshua is commanded to finally fulfill the thing that Moses had promised. So there's this idea if someone commits manslaughter, an unintentional death. There's even a thing in Deuteronomy, and I think it's a really funny picture. Um, I, I don't know, funny is the right word, but weird. 
uh, where Moses is even talking about, like, if you're chopping wood and the head of the axe flies off and accidentally kills somebody, flee to the cities of refuge. Because it wasn't an intentional, you didn't intentionally murder somebody. So what do you do in Israel when this happens? If, if somehow someone accidentally gets killed by your hand, because there's a rule. The law basically stated eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, right? Um, if someone, if blood was spilled, then the close relative of that person has the right to spill your blood. But if it's an accident, it wasn't an intentional murder, then you had the ability to flee to these cities. So you would flee to these cities, to the city gate, where then a trial would happen uh, and a judgment would be passed by the leaders of the city. And if you were found not guilty, you could then enter into that city and you would be safe. You would be protected in that city. And this would last as long as the high priest was alive. So as long as whatever current high priest was alive, you could stay in that city and be safe. This was the city of refuge. As long as you were in that city, the avenger of blood could not attack you. If you left the city, you were no longer safe. So you were covered by the high priest in the city of refuge. So remember, the high priest's duties very much are a picture of the, like they handle the day of atonement, the atoning sacrifices, the garments they wear are very representative of what Jesus ultimately did. So the city of refuge as someone who is innocent is protected by the life of the high priest. Now, when the high priest dies, they're completely absolved and they're, able to, they're, they're free and able to move on beyond the city of refuge. So the death of the high priest brings freedom to the criminal, and he's able to go back freely and live in his normal city and wherever he wants. So think, uh, think through that, how Christ, Christ's atonement for us brings forgiveness, and we are free because of the grace of God through the blood of Christ. In this, and the book of Hebrews consistently calls Jesus our high priest. So if we are protected by the life of our high priest, Jesus, and forgiven completely through his death, well, then we are covered by his life. He still lives. We are forgiven by his death because he died on the cross and rose again. So we are just like this, the city of refuge. We are forgiven. We are justified and covered, and we are forgiven through the blood of Christ. So the cities of refuge, I think, are incredibly interesting. And then the last bit of the book of Joshua. Joshua's farewell. Just like Moses, Joshua gives a goodbye speech. Thankfully, unlike Moses, whose goodbye speech was an entire book called Deuteronomy, Joshua's farewell speech is just two chapters. And we're going to cover a few pieces of it because it's important. So as Joshua is ready to say goodbye... Chapter 23, the final two chapters of, of the book of Joshua. Joshua gives his farewell speech. He's old. He's advanced in years, just as God said. The land has been divided. People have been given their assignments to what, what they need to settle. And so Joshua gathers the people of, people of Israel, and he says one last thing to them. He says, Now it came to pass a long time after the Lord had given rest to Israel from all of their enemies round about that Joshua was old, advanced in age, 
And Joshua called for all Israel, for their elders, for their heads, for their judges, and for their officers, and said to them, I am old. Advanced, I think he wants to get the point across that he's old. I am old, advanced in age. You have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these nations because of you. For the Lord your God is he who has fought for you. See, I have divided to you by lot these nations that remain to be an inheritance for your tribes. So he just summed up everything I just said. From the Jordan, with all the nations that I have cut off as far as the great sea westward, and the Lord your God will expel from them before you and drive them out of your sight. So you shall possess their land as their Lord your God has promised you. Therefore, therefore, be very courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, lest you turn aside from it to the right or to the left. Verse six, I want to repeat. Joshua is reminding them of their, of their victory. And after he reminds them of their victory, he says this, therefore, be very courageous. And what does he call courageous? He calls it courageous to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of, the Moses, of Moses. He says, what is courageous? is to follow and keep and care about scripture. And he says, lest you turn aside from it to the right or to the left, keep your eyes on God's word straight ahead. That is your guide. Not the nations around you, not their cultures, not the pagan things they add to their worship. Keep focused on God's word right in front of you. Verse seven comes a warning. Unless you go among the nations, these who remain among you, you shall not make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause anyone to swear by them. You shall not serve them, nor bow down to them. So this is the description of what he means by don't turn your eyes to the right or to the left. Keep your eyes focused on God and his word. Do not give in to the pagan worship, to the worldly worship ideals, to culture. Don't bow down to those things. Verse eight, but you, Israel, us, we, as we should also follow this advice, you shall hold fast to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. He reminds them of their victory. He tells them, stay focused on God and his word. Do not worship what the pagans worship. Do not worship what the world worships. Worship God. Because if you do, it will be like what's happened. God has given us victory. Do you want to live in victory or do you want to live in defeat? You will live in defeat if you follow other gods. Let's skip down to verse 15. Therefore, it shall come to pass that as all the good things have come upon you, which the Lord your God promised you, so the Lord God will bring upon you all harmful things until he has destroyed you from this good land with which the Lord your God has given you. So Joshua paid attention to the things Moses said. He says, God has, give, God has promised to give you all the good things. He's given it to you. He's given you the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. You are ready to conquer it. He's given it to you. It's here. God will continue to give you all of the good things. But Moses gave us a warning. God will also fulfill those promises when you don't follow his word. He will bring on the destruction, your destruction, 
when you don't follow his word, that just what Moses told us would happen. He says, when you have transgressed the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you have gone and served other gods, so Joshua's predicting their failure. When you sin, when you go and worship other gods, when you bow down to them, then the anger of the Lord will burn against you and you shall perish quickly from the good land which he has given you. So Joshua is giving us a look into the future. So we're gonna get to this, right? After this, we, get, we see the book of Judges, Ruth. We get into 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, and the book of Kings and Chronicles. And we see the, the time in the land, but then we get to the destruction. First, from the north, the Assyrians take the north, and then the tribe of Judah is left. And then Nebuchadnezzar conquers the tribe of Judah, and they get exiled out into Babylon. So the north gets exiled first, the south gets exiled second. It's interesting to me that Joshua remembers that they will get punished for not following God's covenant, but he forgets the part where Moses says he'll bring you back because Moses did tell them that. Maybe it's just because of the, the nearsightedness of Joshua because he was a warrior, he was a conqueror, and he, he led the people here and he's reminding them how precious this is. How precious God's promises are, don't turn your back on them. His whole life, Joshua's whole life, was about obtaining God's promise. He was Moses' general in the Exodus. He saw the people leave the land and he was able to stay alive through that generation that died away and he became the leader of the conquest of the promised land. And so he, his whole life was about seeing the promised land come to the Israelites, seeing God's promise fulfilled. And so he reminds them how precious it is. Don't turn your back on it. And so we'll skip over to, to chapter 24. In verse 14, as he's still giving his farewell speech, he says, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your, father, which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river or the gods of the Amorites in those land who you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is an interesting statement to me. Joshua is telling them, look, the previous generation failed. We couldn't get the Egypt out of them. They were scared. They didn't trust in their God. They built a golden calf. They were still holding on to the gods of Egypt They were still holding on to pagan worship. Do not do that. But it's up to you. It's your choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to serve the gods of this world? Are you going to serve the God who brought you this victory? And then he tells everybody how to handle it at home. It starts in your own home with your own family, leading your own kids. He says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's interesting to me that Way later, 2 Timothy, Paul is writing about what it takes to be a good shepherd and leader of the church. And what does he say? How could you possibly lead a church if you can't lead your own family? Starts at home. That's a lesson from Joshua. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That's where it starts. And the people respond. They say, 
far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and to serve other gods. Oh, how sincere the people are. In verse 19, Joshua says to the people, you cannot serve the Lord for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgression nor your sins. If you forsake the, if, right? So that, that sounds horrible if you, if you only read that verse and you leave off the if, right? He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you as he is uh, after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So really, this is a, this is a glimpse of what kings and really the rest of the Old Testament looks like. It is the constant battle and strife um, of are we going to serve God? Are we going to serve the foreign gods? Are we going to serve God? Do we have a good king who leads us in a good direction? Do we have a bad king who leads us in a direction against the, who, to worship the pagan gods? Um, what happens when they do righteous, when, what happens when they act righteously? What happens when they don't? I think of the, this, this section right here just reminds me of the book of Hosea, right? The people kept not listening to Hosea and his prophecy about the destruction that's coming to the people. He is warning them that the Assyrians are coming to attack them, and we'll get there in the future, and we'll dig more into it. But Hosea is reminding the people that if they do not follow God's covenant, they are going to be exiled. He's warning them they're coming, and they just don't care because they've been so blessed up to this point, and their political allies with the people Hosea keeps saying is going to attack them. So he's like, there's no way. Why would we listen to God when we have political allies and we've indulged in their practices? We're buddies. And then God fulfills his promises. This is what it reminds me of. So Joshua is very concerned with the heart of the people. So the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. It's like they don't even know what they're saying. Joshua said, you have, you have made a commitment. Now it's your job to live up to that commitment. And they go, oh, we will. This is like Peter. When he says to Jesus, I will follow you even to death. And then Jesus looks at him and says, tonight you're going to deny me three times. What? Yeah, he didn't know what he was saying. He was answering on his emotion, not his real commitment. Now, therefore, Joshua says, <clears throat> put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. So they've left, Joshua has left the people. He's told them, he's warned them of their future if they fail, and they have made a commitment to follow God. We'll see how that works out when we start the next book. <clears throat> but as we close up Joshua, there is one last piece. There is some stuff I left off because we didn't finish the book like I wanted to last week. So hopefully you remember some of the stuff we talked about or, or were able to listen. But there is parallels between Joshua and Revelation. 
When you unlock the book of Joshua and you understand the book of Joshua, the book of Revelation becomes easier to understand because the book of Revelation is basically Joshua like as a transformer, like just big. He just becomes a giant version of, of the book of Joshua. Let me explain. In the book of Joshua, a man <clears throat> named Joshua or Yeshua in Hebrew conquers Israel. In the book of Revelation, Jesus, or Yeshua, conquers earth. The book of Joshua, it's a seven-year war campaign to conquer the land. The book of Revelation is a seven-year tribulation before Jesus comes and conquers it quickly. In the book of Joshua, Joshua sends two spies into the promised land as witnesses. In the book of Revelation, we're given two witnesses who spread the gospel during the tribulation. There is a consistent use of the number seven, especially in the conquering of Jericho in the book of Joshua. The book of Revelation is riddled with sevens. There are seven churches, there's seven angels, there's seven trumpets, there's seven trumpet judgments, there's seven seals, there's seven seal judgments, there's uh, seven bowl judgments. Is just riddled with the number seven. And talking about the trumpets, there's seven trumpets that were blown for the destruction of the walls of Jericho. There are seven trumpet judgments in the book of Revelation. When the, when the Israelites conquered Jericho, they were commanded to be silent until the trumpets were blown. Through that whole seven-day journey of wandering around the city, they were commanded to be silent until they were to shout when the trumpets were blown on the seventh day. In the book of Revelation, there was a half an hour of silence in heaven as the judgments were about to fall. In the book of Joshua, the sun stands still for a day. In the book of Revelation, there are signs in the sun, the moon, and the stars. In the book of Joshua, as they are conquering the people, God sends hailstones onto the people that kill more than the army does. In the book of Revelation, hailstones are one of the judgments that come flying down from heaven. As the hailstones are flying, in the book of Joshua, the kings that are involved in the coalition of nations trying to defend their land against Israel conquering them, hide in caves. As the same judgment is being poured out in the book of Revelation, the kings hide in caves. In the book of Joshua, there's a leader in the coalition of nations against Israel named Adonai Zedek, which his name means Lord of Righteousness. Now, interestingly, we've talked about, we talked about this in Genesis. There was a guy named Melchizedek, which Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And he was the king of Jerusalem. Melech means king, Zedek means righteousness. And Melchizedek did, had communion with Abraham as a picture of Christ, as the king of Jerusalem. Adonai Zedek leads against, the army is against Israel. And Adonai Zedek means Lord of Righteousness. So there's a fake Lord of Righteousness in the book of Revelation, or in the book of Joshua. In the book of Revelation, there is the final Antichrist who leads a global coalition against Jesus and brings terrors on the people of Israel. So you see 
the consistent parallel between these two books as they get broken down. And it helps you understand the beginning of the nation of Israel, them setting up their land, their, their conquest of the land, the beginning of the conquest through a man named Yeshua is a mirror of the ultimate fulfillment of when the ultimate Yeshua comes back and conquers the earth and sets up the full promised land with its full borders as God promised for the millennial kingdom. So the beginning of Israel and its ultimate fulfillment are mirrors of each other between Joshua and Revelation. So that's the book of Joshua. What have we learned? I hope a lot. I hope we've learned how we can, the Bible is the best place to interpret the Bible. It gives us insight into the book of Revelation. We learned how important it is to cut away the flesh when we're living in God's will because the Israelites couldn't conquer the land until they cut away the flesh. And we learned from Caleb, I think most of all, how important it is to have an understanding of the victory that God has promised. And we can live in that victory or we can have no faith and live outside of it and wonder what God's doing. Either be confident or not. Caleb was confident. I hope I can worship that way too. And with that, let's pray and close tonight. Father God, thank you for this book. It's a lot of information. There's a lot of stuff. God, I hope that our studying and understanding this helps us really see your plan from beginning to end. God, the design of your scriptures are amazing. It gives us so much insight. But I hope more than anything, we can see your love and how you have chosen to cover us by our ultimate high priest through the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus. We love you for that and help us to share that with the world. In Jesus' name, amen.